0: In Judges, chapter 7, verse 23, this Holy Scripture says, And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites. And capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zelmuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Then Ziba and Zelmuna were in Karkor with the army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba, and Gogbaha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heresh, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zelmuna about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zelmuna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 7. I wondered after Patrick read the Word of God and we all responded with thanks be to God if that's what you really thought after reading about people getting their heads lopped off and things like that. (laughs) I hope you will by the end of our time together. There are a few things that um, have the potential to ruin a great deliverance, a great saving work of God more than a little sinful fear or jealousy. During the tumultuous years of the English Reformation, 1550s, um, England was trying to determine are there going to be a Catholic country or a Protestant country? And once Catholic Queen Mary, later known as Bloody Mary because of all the Protestants she put to death, Once she took the throne, she had a primary target in mind. His name was Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer had done a lot to restore the true gospel into the English language. And as soon as Mary got on the throne, she took Cranmer and put him in the Tower of London prison. He was there nearly three years in different prisons as well, suffering great deprivation, and finally he cracked and he wrote out uh, a recantation of his Protestant views. He denied the Lord. He returned to Catholicism. He was so afraid of dying that the man who helped write things like the 39 Articles of Faith, a re- remarkable, clear doctrinal statement, the Book of Common Prayer, a remarkable, useful book even today, that man betrayed himself himself Betrayed his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He went so far as to request to be given the mass. He gave in to his sinful fears and nearly destroyed all the gains of the English Reformation. Fast forward 200 years. The Great Awakening. Again, in the English-speaking world in England and also over in America and up into Canada a little bit. Two of the main figureheads in that awakening of the great preachers of that awakening were John Wesley and George Whitfield. And Wesley, for some reason, and one can surmise it was only jealousy, looked at the younger and less noble-blooded Whitfield and all his success and decided that he would highlight an area of doctrinal difference between the two of them. And so he preached a sermon and then had it published as a little booklet. It was against Calvinism. Whitfield a Calvinist, Wesley Arminian. If you don't know what those mean, it's fine, but anyway, the bad thing about what Wesley did is he would send this book to be published wherever Whitfield was going to go next. He was causing controversy. So you've got two men preaching the same gospel, calling people to the same Savior. But jealousy on the part of one sows seeds of selfish ambition and chaos into the young revival. Nothing has the potential to ruin a good revival like a little bit of sinful fear or jealousy. And that was true a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, too. So if you have your Bible open there to Judges chapter 7, we see another episode of great revival. God is restoring the good news. He's calling his people back. And the last time we saw Gideon and his collection of 300 torch-bearing trumpeters on the outskirts of the 130,000-man army of Midian, we read this, verse 22 of Judges 7, when they blew the 300 trumpets, Yahweh set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. And this, of course, is the great moment uh, when God fully displays his strength through mankind's great weakness. Gideon, remember, he's the weak judge of a weak nation with a very weak army. And yet strong Yahweh displays his power and his covenant faithfulness for Israel when he proactively turns the mighty Midians against themselves. Did you catch that in verse 22? Yahweh set every man's sword. This is speaking about the Midianite army. He put their swords against each other. So this deliverance is not accomplished by the element of surprise, dropping jars and flaming torches and yelling. This deliverance is accomplished by the efficacy of sovereignty. Every man, verse 21, it says, every man in Gideon's army stood in his place around the camp. And then the Midian army, Midianite army, they ran. They cried out and they fled. So Gideon's 300-man army all stand still Midian's 120, 130,000-man army all cry out, all turn against their comrades, a bunch of them kill each other, the rest of them run away. It reminds you of what James wrote when he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or what Paul said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil in the evil day, and having done all else, to stand firm. (laughs) Gideon's battle strategy here is a kind of picture of the tactics that we need to be practicing in the daily spiritual war. God does not call you to inactivity. He calls you to active standing. The devil is going to attack. That's for certain. The world, your own flesh, are going to conspire to entice you to sin. But God has given Christ's own spiritual armor, as it were, for you to put on and to actively stand and resist all that is evil. Stand in God's strength and watch God bring about his deliverance. Gideon does that. And then Gideon goes on the offensive. It's kind of a cleanup mission after a ton of these guys have killed them each other. A bunch of them run away, and, and Gideon is out to, to rid Israel forever from these marauding Midianites once and for all. You remember the uh, 22,000 men who, uh, when Gideon said, is anybody here afraid? And 22,000 guys put up their hands, and they left, right? And then there was just about 10,000 of them left, and they go to get a drink, and God says, you know, Pick out the ones that lap water, hold water in their hand and lap it. And um, pick those guys. And there were only 300 of them. And he said, there, now you're finally small enough for my victory. Well, it seems like what Gideon does next is God brings about the delivery through the 300 but then Gideon sends a messenger to chase down the 22,000 who were afraid, the 9,700 who weren't lappers, and call them. So verse 23, the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh. Those are the same three tribes those, that, that huge little 30,000 army had come from. So this is the part where you've got to sort of wrap your head around what's going on. Gideon and his 300-man army are chasing some Midianites. And then he sends the 32,000 or so after another group of Midianites. And then he sends another messenger down to Ephraim because we're in the northern part of Israel now. Ephraim is the tribe next to down. He sends a messenger down there and says to the Ephraimites, "There's, there's Midianites coming your way, so you need to be ready to get them too. And that takes us to a transition in the narrative because now we move from Gideon fighting outside enemies to Gideon fighting inside enemies. (laughs) And we're granted a picture of how to effectively ruin a wonderful deliverance by God. What ruins a divine deliverance? First thing is this, jealousy. Look at verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. They captured the waters as far as Beth and also the Jordan. They captured the two princes of Midian. Midian, uh, Princes here is like a, a general in the army, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb. That's, they named it that after they killed him there. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Same thing. They caught him in a winepress, killed him there. They named it the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Orev and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So, as the remnants of the Midianite army are scattering, trying to get back to Midian, Gideon chases one group. His kinsmen, the 22,000 or so, chase another and he calls on the tribe, Ephraim, there's a bunch coming south towards you. Block the waters. Don't let them cross over the Jordan. Now, it can be helpful if you have a Bible map that has like the 12 tribes of Israel. You might want to look there. It's Just kind of helpful to see. I looked at my Bible map for a long time this week trying to figure out all these things. Um, so you'll see there what's going on. It's all happening up by the Sea of Galilee. And then from the Sea of Galilee, you go down to the Red Sea. The Dead Sea, and and that's the Jordan that joins the two. And so he's saying, put some guys here so they can't cross the Jordan and get away. Then he calls out Naphtali, Asher, his own tribe, Manasseh. He says, You guys take care of the other ones. After sending word to Ephraim, and Ephraim. Taking, taking the waters, they, they stand by the Jordan there, they make sure nobody gets through, they capture the Midianites, and they actually kill these two great generals, Oreb and Zeb. Oreb means uh, the raven, Zeb is the wolf. I don't know if those were nicknames, but if I was in an army and I was a general, I'd like it if everybody called me the wolf. Um, anyway, that's, those are their names. Uh, and so Ephraim does it. There's, there's a great victory, right? Like they, they capture that little section that's hived off and is trying to get back, and they come marching back to Gideon now, and they're coming back up into the north country where Gideon is. They've got a couple human heads to show him, which is gross, but that's just kind of what you did in warfare in those days. You lopped off the guy's head and you carried it. David did it with Goliath's head. Do you remember that? I won't go on my little rant about storybooks. Anyway, uh, kids' books. They never include the head lopping. They should. Anyway, um, this is a great victory and, and you would think that as these guys come with their heads and everything, this will be a time of much, much rejoicing. But look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, said to Gideon, what is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. There's no stronger way to put it in the Hebrew language. This is like courtroom language. They are leveling charges against Gideon. Now, What they say here can kind of be taken two ways. It's probably meant to be both. On on one hand, they're saying, how dare you take on this huge enemy of ours and put our nation at such risk without consulting with us first? Or, how dare you take on this huge enemy of ours without inviting us to the fight? And I think it's a bit of both. Because Ephraim is like one of those September rookie call-ups, walking into the Blue Jays' clubhouse after the team has won the World Series on that rookie's home run, and and there's great celebration, but he goes right to the manager, and he looks the manager right in the face, and he says, why did you wait all season to call me up? You see what I did out there? If you'd have brought me up sooner, well, I'm amazing, I'm the man. You're like, dude, (laughs) you're kind of ruining the celebration. The arrogant Ephraimites are jealous for all the glory. So instead of celebrating what God has done, they make it all about themselves. They're prima donnas. So here's Gideon, still chasing down other Midianites, when his own countrymen show up and start accusing him like fancy pants New York City lawyers. (laughs) And, And Gideon realizes, hold on a second, like, we're at risk of civil war right now. Civil war on the day of deliverance. So he answers prudently. He gives them a prop, a proverb, and pop psychology. That was for free. <laughs> he props them up, verse 2. Uh, he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? I don't have any heads. Then he gives them this proverb, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim, better than the grape harvest of Abiezer. Abiezer is his little clan. Ephraim is a whole tribe. Gleaning, you know what gleaning is? Think the book of Ruth. Uh, The harvesters go through and they take all that they can take, but there's little scraps left behind and the poor people come along and they glean, they gather up the scraps. And so Gideon says, look, the, the gathering of scraps by Ephraim has a much more bountiful amount than the full harvest of my clan. Then he uses a little pop psychology. God has given into your hands, verse 3, the princes of Midian, Oreb Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? You got the heads of two of the greatest military commanders alive right there in your hands. You know what I got in my hand? A torch. And that guy over there, he's got a broken jar (laughs) That's all we got. In other words, Gideon appeals to their pride. And the worst part of this is that it works. Look at the end of verse three. Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. It would be like that victorious Toronto Blue Jays baseball manager looking at his pouting, jealous, September call up, after his clubhouse rant, and just staring at him right in the eyes, smiling and saying, you know what, son? You're right. We couldn't have done it without you. So glad you're on the team. And then he turns tail, feeling pretty good himself, about himself, with the ugly smear of jealousy all over his uniform. Nothing deflates the joyous celebration of God's deliverances like the cancer of jealousy. Jealousy almost turns this incredible revival into a civil war. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles were doing all kinds of remarkable miracles in the city of Jerusalem. It was a great deliverance. It was a great work of God. But we read this in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him that is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison the sin of jealousy blinds us to the true work of God no wonder Paul put jealousy in the same category of sin as an orgy you read about that in Romans 13 let us walk Properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I mean, how often do we think something like, huh, oh, that man over there calls himself a Christian, but he got drunk? The shame. And then how often do you look in the mirror? and say, oh, I can't believe I had such jealous thoughts about a brother in the Lord. The shame. According to Galatians chapter 5, one of the works of the flesh is jealousy. And Paul says there, I warn you that those who do such things, like remain unrepentantly jealous, Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sinful jealousy is a big deal. And the Ephraimites of Gideon's day give you a vivid picture of what jealousy looks like and what jealousy does. And things aren't about to get better for Gideon. So the second sin that can ruin a revival is fear, sinful fear. Verse 4. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. Now he's on the east side of the Jordan River. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. Who is he pursuing? Midianite army, the stragglers. So he said to the men of Succoth. Succoth is an Israelite town on the east side of Jordan. He said to these men, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. Now, this will be a very common thing to do. You're chasing a common enemy, a mutual enemy, so you stop at one of the cities or towns of your people, and you ask for refreshment, water and food along the way, so your army can keep chasing after them. Succoth is on that, the east side of the river Jordan, and Gideon's band of 300 has crossed over the Jordan, so of the kings of Midian. They're trying to get back home. In fact, they might have like, marched right past Succoth, for all we know. Either way, the officials of Succoth decide to live by fear and not by faith. Gideon comes along and says, give me some food and drink. But they know that if Gideon fails, their, their town is going to be, they're bordering the enemy. They're going to be the first town attacked. If there's some returning Midianite army, it's going to be them who suffer first. Like a country that's bordering Russia and not sure they want to join NATO, they'd rather stay undeclared. So Gideon asks for supplies and provisions, and they give politics. Verse 6, the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zipa and Zalman already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Have you captured them yet? Talk to us once you're victorious. Until then, adios, amigo. Verse 7, Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord, Yahweh, when Yahweh has given Ziba and Zalmanah into my hand, when he does that, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So Gideon looks on these sinful cowards and he informs them that he's, he will indeed be coming back with Zalmanah and Ziba, and he'll show them, and when that happens, he will punish the men of Succoth for their lack of faith in Yahweh. This is not, on Gideon's part, this is not an act of revenge. Gideon has been called by God to be a judge, a deliverer, a savior. He is acting on behalf of Yahweh. The nation of Israel is supposed to follow in behind him as he leads them back into covenant loyalty with Yahweh. So by refusing to help Gideon fulfill his mission, the Israelites of Succoth are effectually rejecting Yahweh. And they're doing it in the most weaselly way. They're basically saying, look, we'll wait to see. If Yahweh wins, we will serve him. If Baal wins, we will serve him. We're on the side of the winners. But if you look at the living God and tell him you might serve him if he proves himself acceptable to you, friend, you have already rejected him. That is why Jesus said no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the people of Sukkoth looked at Baal like we might look at money as a means to keep us safe and secure. When push comes to shove, what do you really, really trust in? What do you depend on? Where do you turn when the crisis hits? If God asked you to do some version of attack a massive army with 300 of your weakest friends and some pots, (laughs) would you do it? Gideon is a weak man who exercises faith in God. The men of Succoth are weak men who try to control the gods. They operate out of fear, not out of faith. What about you? Are you waffling between turning to Christ or turning to the world? The world will promise you all kinds of things, Jesus promises you himself. Is he enough for you? If you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to play it safe. I'll be spiritual Switzerland and not commit. Then I think I need to let you know that you have already denied Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you are following the devil. You're not waffling between opinions. You are actively rejecting God. So turn from your sins and trust in the one who gave up his own life in the place of sinners. Believe on Christ. Be saved from this crooked and wicked generation. The only cure from sinful fear is soulful faith. Your whole soul, your whole person, rejecting your sins, receiving the Savior. You've got to come all the way to Jesus. Have you come all the way to Jesus? Gideon fired off his warning to the men of Succoth, and then he drew up to the next city, Again, an Israelite city, this one called Penuel. From there he went to Penuel. This is verse 8. He spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. In other words, they say, you're not getting anything from us. We'll wait and see who wins. Gideon says, I'll tear down this thing you trust in. If you think about it, tortured. Destruction, death, that's what awaits the sinfully fearful men of these two cities. Because they rejected the deliverer that God had provided. And friend, the same torture, destruction, and death is what awaits you if you reject the deliverer, Jesus Christ, that God has provided You've got to believe on the world's only savior. There's no other place to go. Back to the war of Gideon, verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmanah were, on, were in Karkor. We don't know where that is exactly. We just know it's really far east. They were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men. That's all who's left out of the 120,000. Gideon and his three hundred man army chased them into enemy territory. verse eleven Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the army for the army felt secure and Zeba and Zealmana fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmana, and he threw all the army into a panic. I think the he there is is kind of opaque. he threw all the army that 's the same language that God that 's used to describe when they' break the pots and scream, uh, that, that God is the one who's throwing the army into panic. So it's like that whole work of God is followed with Gideon because he's up against 15,000. It's still just the 300, and God does it again. But what Gideon had predicted to the men of Succoth and Penuel came true. He captured the two kings of Midian. And notice that he captures them. He doesn't kill them, not yet anyway. And, and as the readers of this account were wondering, well, I wonder what's going to happen next because he's caught them. What's he going to do now that he's got those two kings? It tells us, verse 13, Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Horesh. He captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he, the young man, wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. So remember, one of the refrains through Judges is there's no king in Israel, so every like every city had its own leaders. There were 77 men in that city of Succoth who were the elders, the leaders of that city. And what does Gideon get? Gideon gets a hit list. 77 men who function as the governing officials of Succoth. Verse 15, he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying... Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Gideon walks into that city and he goes, hey, remember how you were waffling between two opinions? Remember how you thought you could decide to be on Yahweh's side if Yahweh won the war? Remember how I told you that waffling like that was really a declaration of independence from Yahweh? Get me some thorny branches. Verse 16, he took the elders of the city. He took the thorns of the wilderness and briars with him and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And just as he said he would. Gideon rips the cloaks off of those 77 men. He has them flailed with thorns and briars. He humiliates them in front of the two conquered Midianite kings. Yahweh's honor will be exalted. And the sinful fear of these men will be exposed. I mean, they will live, but they will live with the physical and spiritual scars of having rejected Yahweh because of their fears. Some people read this bit of history and think, man, Gideon's unhinged here. Like power's gone to his head, he's whipping people with vines. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on here. Just think about what we know about Gideon the man. He is a weak man. Remember how the story began? He's hiding in a wine press, th- thrashing his wheat. Uh, he cautiously approaches the angel of the Lord. He doesn't quite sure that he can trust him, so he puts out the fleece twice. And then God even gives him, he says, go down and listen to a guy talk about his dreams. And, and, and so there's all of this reassurement that's given to this, this man Gideon. Why did Gideon need that kind of encouragement in order to exercise faith, which he did? He did exercise the faith. Why did he need the encouragement? Because Israel is absolutely devastated by the Midianites. Remember? Back in chapter 6, they had been brought very low. How low? Well, we abandon our homes and hide in the hills in caves. And they come in and they, they take all our crops and they let their animals graze our fields and we're left with basically nothing for seven years. Their, they, their army numbers like the locusts. We can't compete. To go against these kind of invaders is a death wish. To do so with a mere 32,000 soldiers, it's nuts. To try it with only 10,000 soldiers would have been crazy. To attempt that with 300 rando lappers was absolute insanity. Unless Yahweh told you that he would be with you and he would deliver you. Gideon is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 because he's a model of faith in Judges 7. He is not some great warrior. He is a humble believer. At least at at this point in his story. And his life is being held up for you in contrast to the lives of the jealous men of Ephraim and the fearful men of Succoth. And you can add to that the fearful cowards of Penuel. Kids, have you ever named something? Like if you get a bird or a cat or a dog. You want to name your dog. I thought if I got a dog I'd name him Stay. But come here, stay. Sit, stay. Anyway, it's an old joke. <laughs> we name things um, like, like let's say you made a fort and, um, and this, this fort was massive. You would not call your fort Tinyville. You'd probably call your fort something like Fort Gigantor. The name matches the thing. On your Bible, a lot of names match the thing or the people. And Penuel is a name that was given this place by Jacob Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It was when Jacob was returning to the promised land. And he met somebody there. He met the angel of the Lord, same guy that Gideon had met. And he wrestled with him all night. Until early in the morning, the angel of the Lord touched Jacob's hip and it was dislocated and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And after he left that place, he called it Penuel, the face of God. He had wrestled with God and lived. But these Penuelites no longer recognized that face. They prefer to wrestle with politics rather than grapple with God. And so judgment falls on them and on what they were trusting in. A tower is a place of protection when the enemies come. Verse 17 says, Gideon broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. If your sinful fears cause you to reject God's invitation to respond to his Savior in faith, then you have to expect the discipline to come, even his ultimate discipline one day. Jealousy and sinful fear have the potential to undermine and ruin great works of God. One of God's greatest works is the church, the people for whom Christ died. So it is no wonder then that sinful fear And jealousy have no place in the local church. Let's look at those two in reverse order for a second. First, sinful fear. After warning his followers, Jesus said to them, "Um, You should just expect that you're going to get persecuted. Welcome to the Christian life. And then he said this: So have no Fear of them, the people that are persecuting you. Have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. Are not two sorrows, sparrows, sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not then. For you are of more value than many sparrows. What is the cure for sinful fear? The fear of getting slandered or mocked. The fear of getting put to death for your faith. The fear of Losing all your earthly goods, if that's what it's going to take to follow Jesus. What's the cure for that kind of fear? Jesus goes on. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus' answer is um, something you can't see? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. What does it take to believe that? Faith. The cure to sinful fear is faith. Faith is simply this. It's acting on what is true. That's what faith is. It's acting on what God has revealed. If God says there's a heaven worth dying for, believe him. Act on it. If God says it's better to suffer the mockery of men than lose your own soul, believe him. Act on it. The cure to fear is faith, not courage. That's what the entire Gideon episode keeps teaching us again and again. Where where do you need to act according to revealed truth? With whom do you need to speak honestly even though it may cost you? your job, your marriage, your neighbors. If God can conquer a 120,000 man fully armed invading force with 300 shouting lappers, breaking pots and shaking torches, you can be sure that he can deliver you. Even the most timid saint on earth can have faith. Faith that moves a mountain. Even when you have sinfully given in fear already. Thomas Cranmer, who we spoke about at the beginning. Praise God, he recanted his recantation. <laughs> so in the hour in which he was to stand in the public square and read what he had written, his recantation of the true faith and the true gospel. The hour when he was supposed to do that, he stood up and he said... I renounce and refuse as things written by my hand, contrary to the truth I believed with my whole heart, written because I feared death. Since my hand offended, it will be punished. When I come to the fire, it first shall be burned. And that is precisely what happened. They grabbed him, they silenced him, they tied him to the stake, they lit the thing on fire, and he took his hand and he thrust it into the flames. (laughs) anybody can repent from their sinful fear. And when it comes to jealousy, we must be equally on guard. Maybe turn for a moment just to James chapter 3, James chapter 3. Not only must we rid the church of sinful fear, we must rid the church of sinful jealousy. Jealousy is what when you want what somebody else has. You want their fame, you want their success. Like the Ephraimites, they're, they're jealous of Gideon. They're jealous, they want the glory of victory. They want to be the man. They didn't ask Gideon, what did Yahweh say to do? Oh, he told you to go with 300. Oh, okay. No, they wanted their names on the Stanley Cup of Midianite destruction. If you find yourself jealous of others, then I want to appeal to you using the words of, our, of the brother, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. James, if there was ever a dude who might have had opportunity to be jealous, imagine what it was like growing up with Jesus as your older brother. James chapter 3 and verse 13. 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That phrase, meekness of wisdom, means the truth has taken hold of your actions. To be meek is to have your power under control. Meek and weak don't mean the same thing. They just rhyme. So wise and prudent church members live lives that are not marked with jealousy and all of its fruit. What's the fruit of jealousy? Verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And Ephraim is an excellent example of this. Their jealousy led to selfish ambition, which led to disorder and vile actions. But look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Christians that kill jealousy walk through this life in the meekness of wisdom. They live lives that are marked by wisdom. They are calm and moderate, compliant, productive, direct, Candid, that's what these words mean. And these wise, meek people eventually leave behind them a church that is full of righteousness, of behavior that matches the character of God. Verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I am taking my time to unpack this for one reason. How often... Do you think Satan opposes anything that brings about unity, righteousness, peace, authentic courage in a local church? How often do you think Satan tries to foul that up? Uh, Raise your hand if you think that's all the time. And if your hand's not raised, you should raise it. Yeah. All the time. He doesn't sleep. All the time. He seeks to create division, disunity, jealousy. And because he's Satan, he will use idolatry in the lives even of Christians to accomplish this. Every form of idolatry, whether you're bowing down to Baal or a bathroom renovation, every form of idolatry will eventually lead to jealousy or sinful fear. That's what idols do. Idols deceive you into thinking that you control them to give you what you want out of life, when in fact they are controlling you. And when they inevitably fail you, which they always do, you will either rage in jealousy or you might tremble in sinful fear. And Gideon... Stood before idolatrous Israel and he offered them a better and a different way. And Jesus stands here this morning and he does the same thing, only so much better. Because as we will see, even Gideon was unfaithful to God before long. You and I need a Savior who is perfect, who never wavered, whose entire life was sinless and righteous. A savior who knew what it was to walk in weakness, completely dependent on his powerful father. And you and I get one in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would make us a church full of Gideon's men and women who act in faith even when we're afraid, who refuse to grow jealous, and who look to you to live lives of wisdom and good, doing righteousness in all of our lives. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.